Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another entry in our ESG series. This week, we're welcoming guest Matthew L. Wald to the pod. Matthew was a reporter for the New York Times from 1977 to 2014, where he wrote extensively on various energy topics, but specialized in civilian nuclear power after the Three Mile Island accident in Pennsylvania in 1979. He's also written extensively about the production of materials for nuclear weapons and its resulting environmental problems. Today, he is a senior advisor for the Nuclear Energy Institute. Juan was joined by Andrew Lydon for this episode, and they covered the following with Matthew. Where nuclear has it wrong? The biggest modern misconception around nuclear power. What are some issues around nuclear waste and how do different countries handle it? What exactly is levelized cost of electricity and why is it useful when discussing the energy infrastructure? And finally, a real world live experiment, California, in more ways than you may think. Enjoy. Matt Wald, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Thank you, Juan. Very good. Thank you. Uh, and I want you to know the world of energy is changing. And in the background here, I have a wood stove, which is a backup. I'm out in the country, a backup to the other forms of energy here. And wood stoves turn out to be highly polluting. Electricity is much better. But the electricity out here is unreliable. So my ambition is to add a catalytic converter to the wood stove now, you have a catalytic converter on your car. It takes pollutants. It turns them into waste heat. But with a wood stove, the heat is not waste. And it's not a three-way catalytic converter. It's a two-way catalytic converter. It would convert carbon monoxide and unburned hydrocarbons into heat and improve the efficiency of burning wood. So it might become environmentally acceptable to use wood, but I still prefer electricity. That's a fantastic way to start our session. I was actually going to ask you, where do we find you today? And also, I need to hear about the new house because, as you know, I've been chasing you for weeks. And I just uh, mentioned before we started recording that I hope that you find uh, persistence of quality and not something annoying. Yes, uh, we found it's our own personal climate mitigation strategy. I live just outside Washington, D.C., when we moved there 30 years ago, there were several very hot, unbearable days every summer. 
Now there are many unbearably hot days every summer, and this is on a small lake in upstate New York. Oh, that's very nice. Matt, could you provide our listeners with a little bit of your background? Yes, I was. I started work after college at the New York Times, where I covered many different subjects, but mostly energy for 38 years, including nuclear energy, which I find particularly appealing and interesting, but also wind and solar and end-use technologies, hydroelectricity, uh, refining technologies for hydrocarbons, automotive technologies, anything that makes or uses fuel is what I... Uh, what I specialized in. I then worked for the Nuclear Energy Institute, which is the trade association of the US power utilities, and also now represents reactor developers of new developers. I did that for six years. Uh, now I am uh, an analyst at the Breakthrough Institute, which is a non-governmental organization based in Berkeley, California, particularly concerned with climate and energy and agriculture, but please don't ask me about agriculture. I don't know much about it. I also write for the American Nuclear Society. Do you still write journalistic pieces on the side? I do. I recently wrote a series of three articles for the American Nuclear Society on the nuclear fuel situation, which is much changed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The first two are out there on the ANS website. The, the third will be out in early September. That's very interesting. You've been covering and interested in civilian nuclear power for more than four decades, as per the bio that you very kindly summarized to us. Where and when did the industry got it wrong? Well, in the United States, it got it wrong. In Asia, it did not get it wrong. But there's a series of events in the United States that made life more difficult for nuclear. The most recent one is improvement in drilling technology. We turn out to have massive amounts of methane fuel, natural gas, fossil gas, that we didn't know we had, we didn't know were accessible. And the price crashed, and that brought down the price of electricity with it. And in that environment, nobody wants to build nuclear. Before that, we never really standardized our nuclear products. Each reactor was built slightly differently. So they do have common components, but you can't simply move operators from one to another. You can't simply use the plans from one to build another. And the lack of standardization left us with a variety of plants, all of which are highly optimized. They, uh, they run very well, they run very reliably, but they're hard to duplicate. In addition, we ceased doing a lot of research and development on new reactor technologies. The United States uses entirely now light water reactors, and that's patterned on what the US Navy did. Uh, light water reactors are perfect for submarines, but on land, there are other options that we should have been trying out and we're now racing to perfect. Uh, Europe used a, a somewhat wider variety of reactors. Great Britain uses some gas graphite reactors, a direction we're now going in. But we've had a gap in construction, which is difficult to recover from. We don't have the skilled workforce. We don't have the techniques in place. And we had a gap in research and design work but we're now working to cure those gaps. We also are in a situation in the United States where 
electricity growth has been very slow. Demand growth has been very slow. And there has not been a real reason to build anything new. So we are putting in wind and solar, which have an advantage. They reduce the fossil fuel burn. They're not much for meeting peak capacity, but during many hours of the day, they reduce the amount of coal and fossil gas you have to burn. But we have not just had a, a lot of call for building new generation of any type. It feels to us, though, that interest and awareness are picking up. Do you think this is true? And if so, what needs to happen for it to pick up? Well, it's picking up for several reasons. One is concern over climate. We have odd, weird climate at the moment. California had a tropical storm. Where I live, we've had smoke from Canadian wildfires coming down into large parts of the uh, the United States. We've had droughts, we've had floods, and people are generally more concerned about this. People are also more concerned, especially after the war in, in Ukraine, about energy security. And it's easier to maintain energy security with reactors than it is with fossil plants that require large volumes of fossil fuel to be shipped in, often from very distant places. And I believe that for those reasons, we have returned to intense research and development, and we will return to large-scale construction. In the United States, this is a real challenge. If we're going to get to 100% fossil-free, carbon-free energy, we need to retire about 60% of our generating system. And if we're going to convert all of the cars and trucks to electricity, all of the industrial use of natural gas to electricity, all of the heating to electricity by mid-century, we're going to have to multiply our supply of electricity by a factor of two and a half to three. So throw out 60% of what you've got and multiply it by, by a factor of two and a half to three. We need roughly 10 times as much non-emitting electric generation as we have today by mid-century. That's a very tall order. We can get some of it from wind and solar, which can be easier to install, but we need to get a lot of it from nuclear. I would have thought that one of the reasons where some countries has had gotten this wrong, had a little bit of responsibility on dogmatic views by environmental people trying to impose an agenda in the 1980s or even the 1970s, but you didn't, you didn't make an allusion to them. Well, it's true. In the United States, we regulate nuclear energy to a much, much stricter standard than fossil energy. We know fossil fuels kill people in obvious ways. We have explosions now and again in not so obvious ways, which was we have elevated death rates because of air pollution. We know nuclear power doesn't do that. The risk that we will tolerate from a reactor is a lot smaller than the risk we will tolerate from other forms of energy generation. And this has put a burden on the nuclear industry. Now, the established utilities won't complain about this. They've learned to live with it. But it is a problem if you go out to build something new. This is a question that we've asked other guests in the past, but we're interested in your opinion. What is, in your opinion, the biggest misconception about nuclear power today? 
it's that it somehow has a bigger environmental footprint than other forms of energy. It doesn't. It has a smaller environmental footprint. We don't have to take bulldozers into the desert and level vast areas to build solar farms. We don't have to build enormous new transmission systems to handle intermittent energy from really distant places. The trouble with wind and solar is you have to build them where the wind and solar is. Nuclear fuel you can ship anywhere. You can't put a reactor just anywhere, but there are lots of places to put a nuclear reactor. We don't have to build enormous wind farms that uh, make life difficult for other people in the neighborhood. The fuel requirements can be met in an environmentally mostly benign way, certainly more benign than coal mining or gas drilling or oil drilling. Uh, all in all, it's an environmentally friendly technology, but it isn't always seen that way. Uh, I would love to live near a nuclear plant. For one thing, they pay lots of taxes. It keeps your local property taxes down. They don't pose a risk to their neighbors, or at least not as large a risk as coal and gas do. And they're more pleasant to live near than a wind farm. Also, at the moment, we have a backlash here in the United States. It may be true in Europe also, against massive renewable development. Hmm. Offshore wind, we will probably tolerate, but it has environmental problems and it has uh, aesthetic problems and construction problems. Onshore wind and solar face big challenges in siting and getting permission from local authorities to build them, as opposed to all of the places for which new reactors have been proposed, people welcome them. Yeah, just, just to build on that environmental impact point or the misjudgment of the environmental impact um, point that you made, like one issue that people would often point to would be the impact of uh, storing nuclear waste or the treatment of nuclear waste and the long-term environmental implications of that. Could you just say a little bit about um, the facts around those? There is no impact from storing spent fuel in an area the size of a, a basketball court or a tennis court you can store decades of fuel. We've gotten very good at packaging this stuff. Uh, I've seen it done. You put it in a cask, you dry out the cask, you pump the cask full of inert gas so that there's no corrosion. You move it out to a small concrete silo out in the open. It's passive. It doesn't have any moving parts. You would know it's nuclear waste from a distance if it's in a location that sometimes gets snow in winter because it's slightly warm. Snow won't stick to it. That's about it. These things have holes at the bottom in the concrete surrounding silo and holes at the top. So there's a passive airflow. There's a chimney effect that keeps it cool. And you've got to send somebody out there every few weeks to see that no small animals have built nests next to the next to the metal interior, which would block the airflow. Uh, they're guarded, but they're really very secure. One of our problems is we're babysitting these things here in the United States at scores of different locations. It would make more sense to centralize them. As time goes by, their heat production declines. As their heat production declines, they get easier to bury. If you look at places where we want to bury nuclear waste, the controlling factor is heat production because you don't want to boil the groundwater. 
If you boil the groundwater, you get steam. Whatever chemical reactions are going to occur will occur faster with steam with a hot repository than a cool repository. So to a certain extent, there's an advantage in delay, although I think everybody would be happier if we found a place to bury this stuff or bury many of the components of this stuff. I think a lot of it may be chemically reprocessed and recovered for reuse. The Finns and the Swedes are going to demonstrate that it's technically possible and that it is actually in the United States, the difficulty is an artifact of our governmental structure, which is the federal government can pick someplace, the locals can like it and the states do not, but eventually we'll overcome that problem. And in the interim, we'll just babysit the stuff. It's This is different from coal waste or waste from burning natural gas, which you and I are breathing. We know where that waste is. It's in the atmosphere. I'd rather have it bottled up in a secure container. How do other countries manage the issue of waste? France has a very big stock capacity on nuclear Canada has been quite successful. The Chinese are building a lot of nuclear. So how do you go about this? It differs. The French, let me go back a step. When you run a nuclear reactor on uranium, you produce a little bit of plutonium. The plutonium is a very good reactor fuel. It's not a good weapons fuel. And the reason is it's a mix of isotopes. And for a weapon, you want pure isotopes. Uh, in a light water reactor of the kind we operate here in the United States, after the fuel's been in place for a few months, you're fissioning not only uranium, but also some plutonium. But then when you're done, you take the fuel out. And the fuel is like a battery in a flashlight. Its form has not changed. From the outside, it doesn't look any different. And we package it and store it on a, on, in a spent fuel pool to cool and then store it out on a, an open pad somewhere. The French take this material, chop it up mechanically, and dissolve it in acid and sort the components chemically. And they recover the plutonium and they use the plutonium as fuel. The remainder has a smaller volume. And to some extent, it won't be radioactive for as long. There are still some long-lived components, but one of the long-lived components, the plutonium, has been removed. The Russians are very good at this. The Russians, although they have a mixed civilian and military system, uh, but they've been reprocessing for years. The United States did this early on, but now has what's called a once-through cycle, which is We use the uranium, we use a little of plutonium, but we don't touch the used fuel. In the United States, the law concerning a repository, a burial site, specifies that the fuel must be retrievable for the first few decades. So if you change your mind later, you can take it out of the ground, chop it up and recover the valuable components. And then the other side is Uh, and, and I'm sorry, the French also, after you've chopped this stuff up and removed what you want, they pour the rest into a strong form of glass, glass that blocks radiation. So the final waste form they have to dispose of is a solid, not a liquid. And you're better off with a solid because it won't dissolve and move around on you. 
we understand all those technologies and we have practiced them to a limited extent, but we don't do them routinely. At some point, we probably will do them routinely. And on the, the other end, there are the Swedes and the Finns who are just building granite repositories. Granite is very stable. You can find granite structures that have been there for millions of years, and they will bury it in granite. And uh, eventually, we will do the same either with fuel that came out of a reactor or fuel that came out of a reactor had useful materials removed from it, and then the remainder was solidified and buried. You've been covering the issue of nuclear waste for the last 40 years. Has the problem from a perception point of view and execution been the same or the fear around it has changed but has just remained? The people who don't like nuclear energy, the first thing they will say is, well, what about the waste? Uh, but I don't think their objection is actually to waste. I think they're afraid of, of accident. And that is just not a rational fear, especially compared to the alternatives especially compared to oil and gas and coal. I think a lot of people have just accepted the idea that this is a problem we're not going to solve in the immediate future, and we will manage the stuff securely until we figure out how to handle it. Just really interesting. Something that you've been writing quite a bit about, and correct me if I'm wrong if that's not the case, but it's this concept that was developed by Lazar, the investment bank, about levelized cost of electricity, LC. Yeah. So could you please explain to our listeners what exactly is that and why it's so important to account for it on the entire climate change debate? Yes. I'm not certain that Lazard invented levelized cost of electricity, but they certainly are the leading practitioner and they have recently walked back from that. They have changed their minds a little bit. They have cautioned people about how the metric should be used. I'd almost say they've repented. Uh, and levelized cost of electricity means it costs me this amount to build the plant. Over its lifetime, it will produce X amount of electricity. The operating cost is Y amount. Let's get out a pocket calculator, figure total cost, total production, and what is the cost per kilowatt hour, which is very useful, but it embeds a concept that is so basic, nobody ever thought about it much, which is you're only going to run the plant when you need it. So if you're going to build a coal plant or a natural gas plant, you are going to run it when the system needs the electricity and when the production has value. If you go to solar, there is no operating cost, basically. You're going to run it whenever the sun is available. You're going to run the wind turbines whenever the wind is available. Sometimes that production will enter into the market and be worth a great deal. Sometimes, especially with solar, There'll be so much of it out there that the solar alone, solar is fratricidal. Solar is cannibalistic. There'll be so much solar out there that it will drive the price down to zero or even below zero. So it doesn't matter if it's cheap to put up a solar panel and get electricity out of it. What matters is what is the ratio of the cost to the value? And if the value is zero or less than zero, 
and we have episodes in the United States of times when the value is less than zero, it doesn't matter what it costs you. It doesn't matter what the LCOE is. A nuclear plant, the ones we have today want to run 24-7 for 92, 93% of the hours in a year. It will produce electricity when there's a lot of solar out there and there's not much demand for the electricity or the price is very low. It will produce electricity when there's no renewable energy out there, when there's very high demand, which happens typically around sunset and a little after, and when prices are very high, its value will be averaged out over all the market conditions, market prices, all the hours of the year. So if you look at LCOE, yes, the cheapest way to get a kilowatt hour at this point in many locations might be solar, but so what? These are not, it's not like you're growing potatoes you can store. There's just no use for this stuff. You're going to either unplug the panel or waste the electricity somewhere because you don't have anything to use it for. Therefore, although the price of electricity coming out of a reactor may be higher, the reactor will still have higher value than a solar panel. Now, this is a system integration problem. And it will depend on how much solar is on the system. It will depend on what value you put on reliability, on having electricity 24-7. If you were running a ranch, a cattle ranch, and your only use for the electricity was to run a well and pump water into a trough so that the cattle could drink, and the water would sit there for hours or days, you don't care what time it's sunny. All you care about is getting enough kilowatt hours to do that work. If you and I are having a conversation over the internet, we really don't want to arrange the conversation when there's solar production at my end and at your end. We want to have a 24-7 system. So LCOE still has some value as a metric, but in because of technological changes, you have to think twice about all of the metrics you need to use when choosing the components of an integrated electric system. It looks as though the renewable uh, capacity is going to continue to grow. So do you have any thoughts on how big that portion of the overall generation mix could be before we start to get into, into trouble? Is there an, a kind of natural place where it can sit and not be too problematic? Or how can those things balance out? Luckily, we're running a real-world experiment. It's called California. And in California, there's a law that if you build a new house, it has to have solar on the roof. There are lots of incentives to build solar. And so they've got now a reverse of the ordinary price pattern. They've got dirt-cheap electricity in the middle of the day and high prices in the evening. They also have a problem, which is if the state is oriented, if the geography is oriented from north to south, then the sun goes down on the grid at the same time uh, all over the grid. What you'd need is a grid that ran east to west thousands of miles, but we don't have that. I don't think any place has that. So they end up in a situation at sunset when all the solar goes away at the same time. All of the fossil plants have been turned down during the day to make space for the solar on the grid, and then they have to start up again. But fossil electric plants are not like 
automobiles that can go from zero to 60 miles an hour in five seconds. They are more like trains, which will start up when they leave a station, but not achieve maximum speed for some time after that. In fact, they end up at sunset with a rise in electric demand faster than they can meet. The solar is going away faster than the other systems can get started. So California has mandated batteries. People think, oh, batteries, it's so we can get solar power to use at night. Well, sort of. Its real function is to help California get over the evening challenge every day, something to tide the system over until the natural gas plants can get started. So California is reaching the point where the marginal new solar panel is useless. They are going to demonstrate for the rest of the world how much they can assimilate. And technology will help them and things will change as time goes on. Batteries may get better and cheaper. At the moment, they're not very good and they're very expensive. They may find some ways to shift some demand into the middle of the day uh, instead of the evening or other peak times when there's no solar. One technique which I find is very interesting is if you're at work all day, you're going to come home from your office at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. You're going to get home and start up the microwave, start up the TV set, uh, turn up the air conditioning because it's been turned down all day. California is suggesting as one strategy, you set the thermostat on your air conditioning to get really cold in the house, 65 degrees, 60 degrees, when there's too much electricity on the grid at noon. Noon is peak production hour. That's the definition of noon. And when you get home, you turn the electricity, the air conditioning off. But the, the, the walls are cold, the floors are cold, the furniture is cold. You don't need air conditioning for a little while. The whole house is a thermal battery. That's one possibility. I find really interesting, excuse me. <laughs> I find really interesting the natrium reactor that is planned for Wyoming. Uh, this is built by GE and by a company backed by Bill Gates. This reactor turns out a steady level of electricity, but that doesn't get turned, excuse me, steady level of heat, but that does not go straight to electricity. It heats up a large tank of salt, and the salt gets hotter and hotter over the course of the day. On the other side of the tank is a steam generator system. There are pipes running through the salt. You pump water through them and the water boils into steam. So you have a thermal battery. So you might have the plant producing 100 megawatts at noon when there's lots of solar and 500 megawatts uh, right after sunset when there's no solar and everybody quickly needs electricity. It is a reactor that's designed to rescue the grid from too much solar. And that kind of development now, that's a battery, not like the kind you put in a flashlight. It doesn't have a positive and a negative terminal. It's just a big tank of heat, but heat is a form of storage. So the exact amount of solar or wind that a system can tolerate isn't clear. The dominant form of storage right now is pumped hydro. In other words, when you've got too much electricity, you pump water up to the top of the hill. When you need it, you let it run back down through a hydroelectric plant. That has some drawbacks. First of all, its round trip efficiency is only about 66%, meaning you've got to put in three kilowatt hours to get two kilowatt hours back out. 
Second of all, the upper reservoir and the lower reservoir are both sterile because fish and aquatic life don't like big changes in the level of the water. But you can do it. If we dis discover, develop, uh, make economic other storage technologies, then the amount of renewable sources, intermittent renewable sources that you can sensibly use will rise. But we're not going to get to zero and we're not going to make uh, enormous cuts in carbon dioxide output unless we have sources that we can dispatch. We can tell them when to run. You can tell a reactor when to run, especially the, the modern reactors now under development. You can't tell wind and solar when to run. Just to come on to one of the other kind of criticisms or skepticisms, area of skepticism about, about nuclear, but perhaps just be not a particularly dog, dogmatic one, just a, a practical one in terms of the the time and cost of, of installing new capacity. So, so we'll maybe talk about Vogel 3 specifically in a right. in a set, but just looking at maybe it's a bad example, but just looking at the, the time to build and the cost to build of that, it, it, even if you took a very pro-nuclear view, is it the case that you have to resign yourself to this being the answer, but not one that we can see the benefits of for five, yeah. ten, ten right. years' time? Well, Vogel took a lot longer and cost a lot more than it was supposed to. Unit four, Vogel is, is a, was a two-unit reactor plant built in the 80s. Uh, units three and four, unit three just entered commercial operation. Unit four, they just started loading fuel. These are Westinghouse AP1000 reactors. This was a design done by Westinghouse in the 90s that did two things. It was designed with a much simpler, more robust emergency system with less wiring, fewer valves, fewer pumps, less requirement for energy after an accident, just all around better thought through. And believe it or not, it was designed for constructability. The idea was you'd build major components off-site, plunk them in place, and put them together. The first example in the United States did not go well, partly because the company building the modularized components was not accustomed to nuclear work and could not deliver the, the modules on schedule and with the appropriate level of quality checks. But it may not be the technology. The Chinese built four of these things, two twin unit plants. They did a much faster job. They did much better at it. Now, they have a different economic system. Among other issues, their labor is a lot cheaper. But we could probably learn something from the way they did it. The Koreans built a Korean model reactor in the Persian Gulf that's based on a Westinghouse design. And they did that more or less on schedule, more or less on budget. And they're now talking about, they built four of them. They're talking about building uh, two more in the United Arab Emirates. It can be done. It requires management expertise and a manufacturing supply chain that has atrophied, but we can bring it back. But it's true you can put in a solar panel and get a kilowatt of electricity out of it faster than you can put in a kilowatt of nuclear, because you don't put in a kilowatt of nuclear. You put in many megawatts of nuclear. Uh, but we're going to need both. We're going to do both. Uh, and you can, simply cannot decarbonize the system on the basis of wind and solar. You, they can help 
They could be a good bridge technology. They could minimize our fuel burn as we get more advanced nuclear online. But no, you, you can't do the whole system that way. In addition, the industry has turned after the Vogel plants to smaller plants which are designed for constructability. And the theory is probably correct that we can stamp out components in a more assembly line fashion. Also, Vogel is a pressurized water reactor. It has an operating pressure in the neighborhood of 2,200 pounds per square inch. So we're talking about hunks of steel that are eight or 10 inches thick. Some of the advanced reactors run at near atmospheric pressure because they're not using water. They're using molten metal or molten salt as a coolant. They're using inert gas as a coolant. They produce higher temperatures, which does two things for you. It gives you higher thermal efficiency. You can make more electricity per megawatt of nuclear heat, and it gives you the opportunity to use nuclear heat in industrial processes. Uh, today's nuclear reactors don't run particularly hot. They're not as hot as some coal and natural gas plants. If you can raise the temperature of their output, which you can do if you're not using water as the coolant, you can use them to make chemicals, you can use them to make steel, you can do, use them in all kinds of roles where they will displace carbon-based fossil fuels. And if you're using them in a low pressure system, the components are a lot easier to make, a lot faster to make and to assemble. So just to give us a little bit of context, if we take a couple of those more successful projects that you mentioned, maybe the ones in in Korea or in the in, in the Middle East, um, obviously them being on time and to budget is 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 brilliant. But could you just give us some context of what the you know roughly what the timeframes and roughly what the sums of money were were involved? Because I guess if it, even if it's to schedule, but that schedule is ten years. Um, that that's a long that's a long time. So just to give a little bit of background on uh, on what the what we're dealing with. Yes, if you get the supply chain in order and you get a cadre of uh, skilled, specialized workers and a management system, you should certainly be able to do it in less than ten years. Uh, it'll still take time. Maybe it'll take you eight years, and you will use. Uh, an amount of nuclear that is appropriate to your system, depending on what other resources you have available, which depends in part on geography. And you'll probably pay more for the nuclear per megawatt of capacity, but it'll be worth more. Remember, a well-run nuclear plant has a capacity factor of over 90%. Capacity factor meaning how many hours of the year is it running? A solar panel may have a capacity factor in my neighborhood of about 14%. Out in the desert, maybe 21 or 22%. Wind can get higher, but it's also intermittent. So the dollars per megawatt of capacity, like LCOE, they're not strictly comparable. Uh, you need to look at them in terms of not what's cheapest, but what does the system need? And then in terms of the smaller modular reactors that you mentioned, again, still a, a nascent technology, but how far away do you think we are from them being installed, uh, not, not just in kind of trial mode, but in kind of wide, widespread rollout? Well, Ontario Hydro 
thinks it's going to put up uh, GE Hitachi uh, BWRX in uh, by the end of this decade. Uh, the BWR, the boiling water reactor, the X is a Roman numeral. It's their 10th version. Their previous versions got larger and larger and larger. This one is smaller and uh, is designed for constructability. Uh, there are some other plans out there to get reactors up and running by 2030. And uh, some of them may do it. Some of them will come close. Uh, if you look at first-of-a-kind construction projects in any field, none of them go as completely as you planned. Many of them are over-budget, delayed railways, uh, big buildings, etc. Nuclear is not going to be any different, but it may get to the point where you can stamp them out and make them run better. So demographically, lots of people without electricity or access to good electricity in emerging markets, again, trading off perhaps with pressure from others to reduce the carbon intensity of them growing their power output. And on the other hand, perhaps concerns about nuclear technology proliferating in in some parts of the world. So what role do you see uh, nuclear power having in, in developing economies? At the moment, the fastest growing source of energy, electricity in the world is coal. Forget what you've heard about a blossoming of solar and wind. It's coal. The reason is it's cheap and it's fast. It's reliable. We need technologies that we can deploy in developing countries that have a limited, two forms of limited infrastructure. One form is you never want to have more than about 10% of your generating capacity in a single unit because plants of any kind, coal, gas, whatever, will trip, will go offline, and you don't want that to cause a national blackout. So small reactors are a better fit for a lot of grids than big reactors. The other deficit, not deficit, the other place where developing countries have to catch up is they don't have an extensive supply chain and human technical base. However, uh, advanced reactors with good automation, uh, good design, may be easier to ship in and assemble and build and operate than the kind we run today. Because they're smaller, because they're module, they require less work at the site. Uh, and we, the United States uh, and Europe, people point out, well, you know, we're only a few percent of the world's carbon output. Nothing we do is going to make a difference. It ain't so. What we're going to do that makes a difference is we're going to invent the technologies that solve this problem. We're going to export the technologies that solve this problem. We're going to export the hardware and the human skill that's going to do this. And the demand for electricity is growing very rapidly, not in the developed world, but in the developing world. And that's where small reactors can make uh, a big contribution. Matt, we can't pass on the opportunity to ask you about your thoughts regarding the impact of the current European conflict on the nuclear industry at large. What are your thoughts almost one year and a half after the invasion of Ukraine? There are two categories of impact. One is that in a place like Poland, which was reliant on Soviet and now Russian fossil fuels, 
they have a very strong desire to be independent. And one of the ways to be independent is to build reactors. The other is what's going on in Zaporizhia clearly is not what anybody wanted. Uh, it's a reactor in a war zone. But it turns out that reactors that were built to contain terrific pressures and amounts of heat are tough and, and earthquakes and other problems, other natural challenges, are tough installations and they are difficult to damage accidentally. You could damage them intentionally, but there's not a lot of reason to do that. If you think about Zaporizhia, if the Russians want to control Ukraine, they would love to own this nuclear plant. They, they may do a little damage to it, but they certainly don't want to wreck it. And they don't want to let loose radioactive material that would cause problems for them too. This isn't the first instance of reactors being caught in a war zone, and it probably won't be the last. But it's in an industrial society, there's all kinds of civil infrastructure that's vulnerable and could be hazardous. Reactors don't rank particularly high on that. There's concerns raised by anti-nuclear types about the security of spent fuel. If you have dry cask storage for spent fuel, what happens if somebody hits it with a rocket-propelled grenade? Well, the answer is the fuel is a solid. Even if you busted one open, you'd get a little puff of inert gas out of it, and then you'd have solid material that you might spread in the immediate area. This is not in the category of widespread death and destruction. It's not in the category of hitting an oil refinery or a chemical plant with a conventional munition. So I think on balance, the experience of Ukraine is a strong desire for energy independence by a lot of places and a cognizance that, yes, like anything else, nuclear infrastructure can be in the path of opposing armies. Then you've mentioned about the risk concerning supply of uranium and the fact that the Russians control a big component of that. Do you have any thoughts to share on that? Yes, they 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 control the supply of, of some uranium. Mostly, they provide uranium processing. You take uranium ore, yellow cake, and you run it through a chemical process to mix it with fluorine gas. And in that form, uranium hexafluoride, you put it into a centrifuge to enrich it. And then you ship the enriched uranium to a fuel fabrication plant. The Russians have a terrific capacity in converting it to uranium hexafluoride and enriching it. They do mine some uranium, but the world's largest supplier is not Russia, it's a different former Soviet Republic, Kazakhstan. And because Kazakhstan is a low-cost supplier, there are huge deposits elsewhere that nobody's really bothered with. Canada and Australia, for example, and even the United States, have lots of uranium that's available for a few dollars more per pound than we're paying for Kazakh uh, yellow cake, Kazakh uranium ore. And there's more interest now in developing these alternative sources that are in more stable areas. The Kazakhs had been shipping through Leningrad. They have now done some shipments through Pakistan, which avoids Russia. 
but even so there's there's more interest now in a diversity of supply in addition none of the technologies involved here is secret lots of people could build conversion plants and could build new capacity to enrich with centrifuges there's a lot of work going on in laser isotope separation which has never been commercialized but may be partly as a result of this conflict the problem is it requires investment and once you get one of these plants built you want to keep it running it's not the kind of thing you start and stop for technical industrial reasons you want to keep it running so you want to build without creating a surplus if you create a surplus you'll be operating at a loss for years so the commercial interests are rather reluctant to go ahead and invest what would happen if there were a regime change in moscow if the war ends and if all that russian capacity is suddenly back on the western market they want some guarantee that uh, there will be a market for the product for which they're building expensive infrastructure to supply so there's a commercial problem here there's an inertia problem here but there is not a resource problem or a technical problem Matt, we're coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests for a book recommendation. So we would love to hear from you. What would you recommend our listeners to read? I can recommend three. There's a guidebook to nuclear reactors by Anthony Nero, which was published uh, some years ago and is uh, runs through all of the various types of uh, reactors, advanced reactors, basic reactors, uh, what we have today, what we might have tomorrow, what their strengths and weaknesses are. There's a, um, a good book on the state of the grid, uh, which is not nuclear, but it does point out how nuclear fits in. And that's called Shorting the Grid by Meredith Angwin. Uh, and there's a book I'm just reading now, The Nuts and Bolts of Pressurized Water Reactors, written by a licensed reactor operator in Great Britain uh, called How to Drive a Nuclear Reactor, which is kind of fun. And I would recommend any of those. Absolutely love that list of recommendations. We are big fans of Meredith and Wayne. We read her book and we had her on the show. And it was oh, such a did. pleasure to talk to her. So thank you. Yeah, um, there's not a lot of good analytical literature on how the rules of the grid influence technical choices and how the engineering context is shaped by political decisions that are not always optimal. And that's what Meredith does in that book. Matt Wall, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you to both of you. It's been a pleasure.